Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy, WEHC 90.7, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. Wow, we got a great show for you today. We have Earl Carter on, and he has a book called Appalachian Album. And I tell you, really, I love this book, and I love the photographs in it. So, Earl, welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Henry. I'm pleased to be here. Honored that you've asked me to come and be a part of your program, considering all the uh, other notable guests you've had on before. Well, as we like to ask around these mountains, Earl, where are you from? I'm from Kingsport, Tennessee, uh, in that region. Grew up around there. I've lived there, lived in Florida, lived in Alabama, but mostly around the East Tennessee area. Well, and what we want to know is... Well, how did you come up with this Appalachian album? Let's talk a little bit about this before I get to talking about all sorts of things. We have so much in common. You went to Dobbins, been in high school and graduated there in 65, and I was teaching there in 68 and so on and so forth. But let's talk about your book, Appalachian Album. Well, Appalachian Album is a uh, what the, the, the title denotes. It's an album of uh, photographs of stories of my memories of the Appalachian area of people the places and events that I have covered over the last 50 years or so working in the Appalachian region I worked at a local newspaper in Kingsport the Times News for many many years then did a lot of freelance work back and forth but uh, I spent a lot of time in southwest Virginia Kentucky even went up into West Virginia uh, I'd love to get out of the office and roam around the back roads and meet people and, and kind of see what they were doing. And this is a collection of those stories and pictures for, from doing that kind of activity. Well, then, when you say Appalachian Album, but I want to back up just for a minute and talk about your expertise. You got started at the Boys Club down there in Kingsport. Uh, in a dark room. Is that right? Is that how you got your story? Well, actually, I, I did. I had an interest in photography early on in, I guess, middle school, junior high years, they called it back then. They had an old uh, converted uh, restroom at the boys' club and a lot of donated supplies from Eastman Kodak there, as it was called back in the day in Kingsport. And I just got in there and played with a lot of that stuff and kind of self-taught myself a, a lot of things, read a lot of books, Every photo book at the library, I guess I read four or five times. And uh, there was an annual Boys Club photo contest, which I entered. Did not win. Did not even come close to winning. But I got an honorable mention for a photograph that I entered. And the uh, editor of the local newspaper, uh, ran, they ran a story about it. And he asked me if I'd be interested in a job. And I said, well, of course. You know, it's a dream come true for a and boy, still in high school, you know, go to work for a newspaper taking pictures, but that wasn't exactly what they wanted me to do in the beginning. Uh, they had me working in the dark room, processing film and uh, doing other things around the newsroom, kind of a copy boy and whatnot. Well, I kind of worked my way into staying mostly in the dark room in the photo area, and uh, when no one else was there, they would send me out to to make photos for them, and it just kind of kind of grew from there uh, uh, about. Three years later, I was the chief photographer there. Well, I know that newspaper, and it's very well known. And Now, you were there for how many years? 
I was there off and on for, I think it was about 33 years, I believe it was, total. And you went on down to Miami and then uh, Huntsville, is that right? I, I went, to, went to Miami. I worked for the West Palm Beach Bureau of the Miami Herald for a short period of time. Returned to Kingsport because of some illness in my family. I'm an only child, so I came, came back because of that. I, I, it was a tough decision at the time, but I think it was the right decision, or else I would have never met all these folks in the book. I uh, stayed there for a long period of time, went to uh, Huntsville, Alabama to be their photo editor, uh, which was a totally different job for me. Instead of taking pictures, I was directing people and mentoring them, and uh, I missed being out in the field. So uh, when I came back to Kingsport about uh, 15 years or so ago, I uh, started going back out taking pictures. But most of these uh, photos in the book are are from back in my early days. Uh, I have photos in there that I took when I was less than six months out of high school. Well, I'm holding this book here in my hands, and we're talking, listeners out there, we're talking with Earl Carter today on Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7, and we're talking about his book, Appalachian Album. It is a beautiful book, and I'm going to start off, Earl, by asking you about the man on this cover. Well, the cover is a photograph of Reverend Rand Mendenhall. Uh, and for you folks out there who can't see this, this guy, if you picture the guy, a stereotypical country preacher from a Hollywood movie, this is the guy with the, the old fedora hat and the glasses and, and that craggy face and, and the black suit. I mean, th- this is the guy. Uh, Rand Mendenhall was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher in the Fairview community of Scott County, which is uh, between Spears Ferry and Duffield. And uh, he uh, would go to different churches. Uh, when I say circuit riding, I mean they didn't have enough preachers for all the churches that they had in the area. There were about five of them. And he would go to a different one every Sunday, and the folks would all gather at that church so they could all have their little community church. He started doing this back in the days before uh, he had a, a car. He said he did this on horseback. And they told me stories about uh, when it was so cold that his boots would freeze to the stirrup of the horse. And and as I said in my uh, talk the other day at the library, you know, thank goodness when I met him, he was driving a pickup truck, and it was a little easier to get around. But uh, so, such a nice gentleman, and I put him on the cover because he meant so much to me, and, and I wanted something there that touched on the spirituality because faith is such an important part of Appalachian people's heritage and their daily life, and I, I wanted that to be the cover of it for that reason. Well, now, Earl, I got one quick story for you along that line. Back when I was over in Beulah Dean under the Rhone, went to first grade there, I remember a debate. We had someone like him, and his name was Preacher Sam Odom. And I remember that my brother was a big fan of Billy Graham, and there was quite a debate on who was the better preacher. And I always remembered that. Preacher Sam, of course, was a free will Baptist, and and he worked that circuit over there. And so you just you made me recall that. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as Appalachian album, I'm going through here and looking at some beautiful uh, portraits and beautiful photos. Uh, we will talk about where people can get a copy of this in a minute. But I also see here uh, Flossie Brown. Flossie Brown, could you talk a little bit about Flossie Brown? Flossie Brown, yeah, people react to her because of the name. Flossie Brown I met on a hillside on an old road in the mountain going into Harlan, Kentucky. 
And as I was driving by, Flossie and her girls were standing on the porch. They had just hung out their laundry, and it was tied at one end of the porch and the other, you know, strung a big string with all their their laundry hanging out there, and it was very colorful. And as I often do, I drive by and I see something, I stop and start talking to them and taking pictures. And uh, that's what happened with Flossie, and we just kind of struck up a conversation. I took a few photos over and talked to her, and uh, I remember she had a daughter who was worried about her future, what she was going to do. I think she was about 17 years old, and it just struck me that, you know, I don't know what kind of future she had there in Harlan County at that time. And uh, I did go back and see Flossie years later. I, ha- I have an epilogue in the back of the book where I looked up a lot of the folks to find out what happened to him and found out that her daughter had moved to Ohio and had moved out of the coal fields. But Flossie was still there. Her house had burnt down, but she was there living in a, uh, a manufactured home uh, virtually in the same place where she had lived like 30 years before. And uh, life for her hadn't really changed very much. Well, that's one of the more interesting, that's one of the interesting things about this book because you do go back and you find these people. And I remember the young girl, the photograph of the young girl, the two-year-old. Is that right? Are you talking about Bonnie Lawson? I'm, I'm sure uh, Bonnie Lawson uh, touched me in probably ways that nobody else in this book did. She was a little two-year-old girl. And I photographed her in 1966. And like I said, this was I was barely out of high school when I got this assignment to go down to Hancock County with a reporter and do a story about poverty uh, at that time. And I didn't know her name. The reporter didn't get her name. I didn't get it because uh, when we were in there, it was just her and her mother, and her mother had said something about, my man will be back pretty soon. Y'all better leave. And we didn't know what to expect, so we left. (laughs) And uh, I always wondered what had become of her. I have a picture of her. If you can picture this, there's a ramshackle house, there's a pot-bellied stove with a fire, a sack of coal and a sack of potatoes, and an old hunchback dog there bent over with these eyes that just very soulful, and a young girl in a tattered dress standing on one side of that looking at me. And uh, the whole scene together, it, it just touched me because I wondered what kind of life she would have and what would become of her. So uh, 12 years later, I went out looking for her, and uh, with the help of a lot of folks at country stores and service stations uh, around the county there, I managed to find her. So you went back and you found her, and we're going to talk about a number of these other people as we go that you went back and found. I know the fellow that with the teeth that has the beautiful smile. But before we get into that, uh, I want to mention we're going to, you have a topic, you have a uh, Coal, you call one section coal. Mm-hmm. And what I like to read, and we're talking with Earl Carter today on Poets and Writers, and you say this, uh, Earl, uh, coal. Coal is the one element that touches almost everyone in the Appalachian region in some way. The economy revolves around its manufacture and distribution. Coal has brought times of prosperity to the area and caused some of the most persistent problems. The fortunes taken from the hills of the region are always reflected in the areas surrounding the mines. The rugged geography of the region makes it almost impossible to replace the economic benefit of coal mining with anything else. So we're going to talk about coal, and you were over there taking photographs and covering that. And talk about, if you will, that picture of the man with the big smile and the teeth. Well, he was a coal miner that I met. Again, here, this is Harlan County, Kentucky. 
back when he was pretty young. Uh, when I saw him, he was helping change a tire for a lady on a car. We struck up a conversation, and, and he was covered in coal dust. He had just gotten off work, but a young fellow with just a great personality and a beautiful smile and these pearly white teeth, and I remarked, you know, you should be doing toothpaste commercials, and he just laughed it off. And I wondered what had become of him because a lot of folks don't don't survive the coal mines or they come out worse for the wear, you know, with black lung or whatnot. But when I found him years later, he had done quite well for himself. He had gone to school. He had studied. He had become a supervisor with one of the coal companies over there, had a nice home. His children were in school, going to college, and, and turned out quite well. It, that's not a story you often hear for folks in the coal mine because uh, if they can't adapt, you know, move up to supervisory positions or do something else, when the coal boom goes bust, well, they're kind of left out in the coal. Well, let's talk about, this, along that line, talk about Stonega because I know there was a great football player that came out of there. It was called the Stonega Stallion. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's uh, Mr. Clark, yes. Uh, I certainly have heard of him. Uh, there are quite a few famous folks come out of there, actually. But uh, Stonega is a tale of two cities, more or less. Uh, Stonega is a coal camp at the mine, the Stonega coal mine up there. But back in the day before integration, black coal miners and white coal miners did not live in the same community, much like the rest of the world. So there was a black area of Stonega devoted solely to the black miners and their families. And it was closer to the mine where it was more dusty, it was noisy, the trucks come through and farther on down the road, the white miners and supervisors lived. Well, when I went there, it was mid-60s, late to mid-60s. Integration had just happened across the country, but the, the black families still lived there. And the houses were pretty run down, covered in coal dust. The children had no place to play except on the railroad tracks behind their home. And the uh, coal trucks were coming through between the houses all day long. And you, you, the dust they scattered, the noise and everything, it, it was a dangerous situation. But here again, I found one of those children that I photographed on that railroad track and found out that he was living in Big Stone Gap, had grown up. He worked for a company driving a, a truck, a fuel truck, and had kids in college and, and had come out of there quite well. Well, we've just got so much to talk about on Poets and Writers today with Earl Carter and talking about this book, Appalachian Album. Now, one other, there's several, one of the things I want you to mention that stuck out my, uh, in my mind was that you're covering the strike over there and your photographs of the uh, police and, and our, the troopers and all that. And it was interesting and there, there was a sense of humor. Of course, there's an old Irish proverb, life's tragic, but it ain't serious. And I, and I love that. Talk a little <laughs> bit about strikes over there and that sort of thing. I'm sure it was had a serious side. It obviously had a very serious side, but I, I like your photograph. Well, it was a very serious thing to the uh, striking miners, but uh, as strikes go on for such a long time, you know, you have to do things to relieve the monotony and the stress of it. This was the last great coal strike in the coal fields of 1989 Piston Coal Company. I covered the area up in, is it Dickinson County, McClure? Is that is that the county? Have I got my counties right? And uh, I would go up there every other day or so, and it was pretty much the same thing, except we knew when something was about to happen, someone would tip us off. 
A lot of celebrities came in there. Ned Beatty came in for a day or two. Uh, you know, famous actor Jesse Jackson came in there. We, we had the media around all the time. But one of the funniest things that I remember about that, I, I interviewed one of the state troopers afterwards, and he told me a story about how the striking miners would gather snakes up uh, when they went home at night because no, nobody stayed on the picket line much at night. They kind of shut down. But they would get out there very early in the morning before the state troopers would arrive, and they would dump those snakes out around where the troopers would park. And they'd get out of their cars, and, you know, I mean, you can imagine their surprise when they step out and there's four or five snakes, you know, crawling around under them. Well, I, I, and I remember you saying in your presentation not too long ago, but the troopers pointed out that they were outgunned and outmanned and, and they could have been in a serious situation if something had happened. Oh, he told me, he said, said they could have killed us all if they had wanted to because everybody had a rifle or something, shotgun, on a rack in the back of their truck there. But uh, they were all trying to do their job, you know, to keep ease tensions. And, uh, and they got to know each other, really. Uh, he told me that some of those folks kind of became friends. So they couldn't outwardly be friends. But, you know, on the side, they would say, hi, how you doing? You know, because they were adversaries. But, uh, but they didn't hold it, uh, you know, personal against each other. Well, and then the uh, strikers would uh, be there, and they'd have to pick them up and carry them off. And, and uh, there didn't seem to be that many hard feelings about it, and some of those strikers were pretty heavy. Oh, yeah. They uh, practiced what you call passive resistance. They would sit down in the roadway to block the coal trucks, and when they were uh, ordered to get up and say, you're under arrest, they, they didn't resist, but they didn't get up. They said, well, you're going to have to carry me off. And they did carry him off, and they would wave to their friends, here we go again, and laugh about it. It was, it was kind of a comical thing, really. Uh, but uh, they took it to another level there one day when the uh, folks who ran the mine decided they're going to put a stop to it, and they sprayed water on the roadway where the uh, strikers were sitting down. Well, it had uh, the wrong effect because the uh, they figured the strikers wouldn't sit in all that muck and coal dust and oil and everything, but they did. They sat right down in the middle of it and dared them to come in, you know, the troopers to come in there and get them and get your uniform dirty. And they had no choice. They had to go move them, and you can imagine what a mess it was. They probably they, they ruined thousands of dollars' worth of uh, clothing up there doing that. All right, as we move along here, I want to be sure and get this section in your book. And again, the book, Appalachian Album, The Carter Family Fold. Now, I go back in, we, a lot of us around here go back with the Carter family one way or another. Talk a little bit about the Carter Family Fold, and then I'm going to add some things to that. Well, I started covering the Carter Family Fold a long time ago, back before there was a, a building out there. Um, Jeanette and I are friends, and uh, I used to go over and take pictures, and she Got, it got to where there were too many people for the little store where they were holding these, you know, weekly get-togethers. So she built a little lean-to kind of thing out back and put logs across the hill up there. And that's all they were was logs, you know, held up with some stakes driven in the ground. You can only get three people on that stage. And she and, and her mom, Sarah, one of the original Carter family, and her brother Joe would get out there and perform in the summer when the weather was good. And those pictures, all those historic pictures of that before it was built are in there. There's a section in my book on the Carter Fold, and the book has several different sections that are devoted to specific things, plus all the other photos that are in here too. But there's pictures of her, there's pictures of uh, June Carter, Johnny Cash, 
in there. Um, I, I, I like to uh, go back and, and show people what it was before all the hard work that went into Absolutely. the Carter Foal now. Absolutely, and I want to say that when I first met Jeanette, I was walking around there, and she came down there, and it was grown up. And I'd seen a picture on the album uh, out in Eugene, Oregon, and I tracked that old uh, place down there, the A.P. Carter store, and Jeanette came down there, and she said, uh, showed me around, she said, I'm going to reclaim this, and we're going to have um, a show here, and said, Mm -hmm. I hope you'll come back. And I did, and we became friends, and she called me one Sunday morning, and she said, Henry, I've been thinking about this, praying about this, and we'd like for you to be treasurer of this. And I said, uh, to my credit, I said, Jeanette, I don't think you need a McCarthy in the Carter fold, and and it was uh, it was all in good graciousness, mm-hmm. and and then June and June and Johnny used to come up there, and I like to say I saved their marriage one time because they were kind of bickering back there in the back, you know, before they started. You know how they how they did that, and you know what I'm leading into is talk mm-hmm. about this uh, photograph of June and Johnny. Okay, yeah, uh, I knew June uh, from various conversations and meeting at the Carter fold and whatnot, and. Uh, She'd sit and say, Tim, tell me to you who you can to, honey. Let's just see if we're kissing cousins, whatnot. And and she was a hoot to talk to. But what you're referring to is uh, she asked me to take a picture of her and Johnny. Uh, uh, she told me, said, uh, we hadn't had a good picture made in a long time. We need a picture. I said, well, I'll be glad to do that. And she said, I want one of them close up kind of pictures, you know, in the way she talked. And I said, well, okay, you need to come by my office, which was at the newspaper, and come to the studio. And she said, I will do that. And they were at the mall at that time in a book signing. I figured I would never see her again because they were busy. Well, about two hours later, a big bus pulled up in front of the building there. And uh, I, I saw that from later, I saw it out there. But I was back there working, and I heard this voice. And I heard there was kind of a mummer going on in the news. I heard this voice, where's Earl? And you don't mistake that voice. That was Johnny Cash. And uh, he came back, and June followed him, and she was talking to everybody. And John was like on a mission. He, he, you know, he was all business. And she was saying hi and waving at everybody. And they came back, and we got in the studio and started taking pictures. And she went over and grabbed him, hugged, got close to him. She said, this, this is the kind of picture I want. And I said, okay. And I started taking photographs, and the flash went off a couple of times. And John and that big voice said, are we done? I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I've only taken a couple of pictures here. I said, John, let me, let me get a few more here, just make sure we got it. And I shot a couple more, and he said, are we through? And I'm thinking, you know, how often do I get Johnny Cash in the studio? I want to keep him here for a little while anyway. And I said, well, let me get a couple more. And uh, I shot a couple more, and he started to say, are we? And he got about that much out. And she hit him in the side with an elbow. And he kind of grunted and never said another word the whole time. He just behaved himself, and June was talking and going on and laughing, you know. And I, to this day, I don't know if he was putting me on or if he just wanted to get out of there or what was going on. Well, you know, they would come up there so much, uh-huh. and they loved it. And that is the last place that Johnny performed I know, yes. in, uh, in a wheelchair there. So, yes, the Carter Fold, and, of course, you've got a beautiful – picture too you go in the graveyard up back there the uh keep on the sunny side one and so forth mm-hmm. now earl as we move along here on the show today you have got uh at on the back of this cover you've got a young boy uh in a cowboy hat he's walking across and uh, crossing a, walking across a field and says as the as the book title implies appalachian album is a gathering of photographic offerings the picture spans 30-plus years covering events in the region. I call the above photo going home. 
And in a way, this book is my opportunity to go home by sharing some of my favorite images. Mm-hmm. Talk a little about that little uh, that little boy there. Well, that's one of the Lawson kids, a uh, family that I kept up with, the little girl with the uh, the dog that I talked about earlier was one of the Lawson family. I went back and kept up with them through the years. This is um, Herbie Lawson, uh, and we'd been out in the field on the farm, and he was just walking back to the house, and I turned around and saw that, and I thought, that's just perfect, uh, heading back up on the side of Clinch Mountain. And I thought it was a great way to end the book, kind of, you know, heading home like like me, you know, I'm later in life. I'm I'm heading home before long, and I wanted to put all this together is kind of a look back, you know, at the end of the day, you want to look back and say, well, have I done anything worthwhile? Have I done something worth sharing and something you want to live, leave behind? And that's kind of uh, symbolic of what I was trying to do there. Well, Earl, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. And I know I tend to talk too much on this show, but it is certainly a pleasure to share stories and to hear your story. Do you have any closing comments out there? And where can they pick up a copy of this uh, fine book called Appalachian Album by Earl Carter. Well, I, I'll say this book has um, been a blessing to me because it has enabled me to meet a lot of folks, to share a lot of memories with people who grew up, you know, in some of the situations that are pictured in this book. Uh, I've gotten more out of it probably than most people who read it. Uh, it's been a blessing coming back to me, really. And as far as where you can get the book, the book is available uh, in Kingsport at I Love Books in the Fort Henry Mall. It's at Hartwood in Abingdon. Uh, it's at the Museum of Appalachia in Clinton down in the uh, other part of Tennessee at the State Parks in Virginia and uh, the Clabbert House in Wise, Virginia. Uh, the little bookstore in Big Stone Gap, I, th- I think that's most of it. And you can order it online at AppalachianAlbum.com where you can, you can order it there with free shipping. Well, thanks for listening to Earl Carter today on Poets and Writers. And this is Henry McCarthy saying, Do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or steal away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. I grew up on the side of Clinch Mountain with the beauties and the music of the woods, the sweet song of the bright bubbling fountain, and the warble of the birds I understood. When I've sung my last song in the evening, and the sun sets in the golden west, all the scenes of this world I'll be leaving. In the shadow of Flinch Mountain I will rest Long ago said the oak and the cedar Singing deeply in a whisper of the past Stood not then this great towering leader are the fountain where the crystal gems are cast. When I've sung my last song in the evening, and the sun sets in the golden west, all the scenes of this world I'll be leaving, in the shadow of Flint's mountain I will rest.
Can I ask how this green lofty mountain In the cauldron of the lonely desert stood Said this song of the bright sunny fountain We were given by the waters of the flood When I sung my last song in the evening And the sun sets in the golden west All the scenes of this world I'll be leaving In the shadow of Lynch Mountain I will rest that gate I have passed since my childhood or the railway through the tunnel to the west singing songs of the clinch mountain wildwood songs that people found in birds love the best when I sung my last song in the evening and the sun sets in the golden west all the In the shadow of Clinch Mountain, I will rest. 